Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again everybody and welcome to another edition of the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher. Uh, very, very happy to be bringing you uh, this episode. I want to thank you guys for the comments about our last episode, which was just you and me. Um, I, I'm getting used to this whole talking to myself thing. It seems like no one wants to play with me. No, that's not true. It's just that many times... We have something scheduled, and then life gets in the way. So uh, when I think I'm going to have a really good guest lined up for the podcast, if that person can't do it, the show must go on. You know, I mentioned several times before on this program that I am from a show business background, and along with that comes uh, certain tenets that we hold near and dear to our hearts, and one of them is that the people want to be entertained, and so I am here in the cockpit by myself flying solo for you once again tonight. I hope that you guys uh, continue to be entertained and informed by this podcast. Uh, If you're not yet a member of Tournament Poker Edge, I recommend you join immediately. We have so much content for a very, very low price. Just visit TournamentPokerEdge.com and see for yourself. Now, with that out of the way, I want to tell you guys something kind of on a personal note uh, that happened the other night. I I became friends through poker podcasting with a gentleman most of you will know. Uh, He's a great coach. He's a TPE coach. Um, He also does private coaching, and he was our guest a few weeks ago, Alex Fitzgerald, the assassinato. Well, after recording uh, our episode, he mentioned to me off the air, if you will, that he's a big comedy fan and he really wanted to check out my act. So long story short, I got him a couple of tickets and uh, he came out and here's what I love about poker players. It was an interesting show. Uh, The crowd was kind of rowdy. There was a lot of heckling and I was just trying to have to, (laughs) I kind of had to do my best just to roll with the punches and see if I could perhaps get a joke or two in edgewise around the uh, wisecracks of the audience. Don't get me wrong. They weren't, um, they weren't malicious. They were just uh, participatory. I guess you could say, actually, uh, Joe Stapleton was on that show as well. Anytime Joe comes to New York City, he has an open invitation to come and perform in the show that I run uh, in Greenwich Village. So uh, that's where this show was. So uh, Alex got to see Mr. Stapleton perform. And uh, then at the end, I went on to try to quote unquote headline a show where the real headliner was the audience. <laughs> so anyway, um, I think I did okay. You know, it's it's not exactly what you something that you can plan for. The only thing that can prepare a performer for that type of crowd is having had the experience of performing for such a crowd in the past. And as I mentioned, I do live in New York, so it wasn't my first rowdy audience. Believe you me. 
still not the ideal situation for uh, you know a comic to have someone in the audience whom he respects a lot, and you know, I kind of want to impress Alex and continue building my friendship with him. And now he's got to see me uh, in less than ideal circumstances. Uh, and believe me, guys, if you ever go to a comedy show uh, and you think it might be fun for the comedian if you heckle and that it's going to improve the show somehow, if you are the drunk person in the audience who can't be quiet, uh, you could not be more wrong. All we really want you to do is sit there, answer questions only if you're asked, and otherwise, the only thing you should ever say at a comedy show is ha. So anyway, I get this nice email a couple of days later from Alex, and it's a very thoughtful, well-written, uh, introspective, uh, basically candid review of the performance that he saw. And it just, you know, it really means a lot to me that he took the time uh, to send it, to send me an email kind of detailing his impressions of the show. Uh, now, Alex is a performer in his own right. Many of you may have seen his rap, vat, rap battle videos online. Obviously, I'm not a rap battler myself. I can't even say it without getting tongue-tied. Um, but yeah, so he's a fellow performer and someone that I respect on so many different levels. So uh, I like the way he kind of broke it down for me, almost like a, a poker coach. You know, that's just the way his mind works. Almost anything that he's uh, observing, he can't help himself. Uh, just the way he kind of breaks things down in there into their component parts. And his reaction to my performance was extremely valuable to me because I got to see what it's like to peer into the mind of a genius uh, who is attending my comedy show, which does happen from time to time, uh, especially as I get involved in performing more and more often for poker players and the people who love them. Poker players, by and large, are a highly intelligent group. And, you know, they tend to associate with other highly intelligent people. So perhaps the uh, easy jokes and the tricks that many comedians would have up their sleeves wouldn't work for an audience comprised exclusively of poker players. Um, so anyway, uh, thank you, Alex, if you happen to be listening, for sharing your thoughts on my performance. And uh, I'm so glad that you guys could come. And that brings me to another point. If anyone out there listening is ever in New York City or anywhere else I happen to be performing, you know, reach out on Twitter at Clayton Comic. It's so easy. Just one word. Clayton Comic on Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat. But really, Twitter is where I do most of my social media. Uh, love to have you guys come to a show. Let me know. And if I can, I'll get you discount tickets or even comps if they're available for the night that you want. Um, so yeah, always love kind of crossing the two disciplines that turn me on poker and comedy. So when poker players come see me do comedy or when I get to play poker with comedians, it's always a blast. And speaking of comedy, uh, Denise Pratt is a name that you may have heard recently. Uh, Denise is a poker player who's kind of been on the scene for a while. I think she has like a financial um, executive kind of background. She is brash and outspoken, and she's getting a lot of attention for some 
comments that she's made on camera or around people who have enough influence to get her comments repeated on social media, etc. cetera. Uh, if you don't know who she is, you can go ahead and Google her. Uh, Denise Pratt, I know she recently played on the uh, ladies' night cash game that they did on Poker Go. Um, she has some success in the poker tournament world. Um, I, I love her. I, I want to say right off the bat that I really like that Denise is uh, bringing some fun to the game. She's known for, uh, you know, just kind of speaking the unspeakable. She kind of has a no, no filter, if you will. And uh, it's refreshing to see uh, a woman in poker who isn't trying to play nice with the big boys and is doing it in her own style. Um, she's been getting a lot of attention. She's been getting some positive as well as some negative attention. Uh, the only thing I would say negative about what she does is I just don't appreciate the profanity. I don't think it's necessary when you're in a group where you don't know everyone. I think you should mind your manners and watch your language because you never know what some people might find offensive. Now, this might shock those of you who live far away from New York City and think that all of us are just the uh, <laughs> the the most sewer-mouthed uh, sailor, whatever. But uh, for one, I for one don't appreciate when people use profanity or uh, inappropriate language at the poker table. Uh, but that aside, I love that Denise has fun when she's playing. She seems to be having a jolly time, whether she's winning or losing. And uh, she's just another kind of name that I want you guys to be familiar with um, if you're going to be on the live scene. If you encounter this woman who's kind of larger than life in so many ways, I want you to know who she is and where she's from and that she's not an amateur player. She does know what she's doing. Now, next topic, I, I did not play any poker this week. It's been a very busy comedy week. I'm also working on a TV pilot. I'm very busy right now, but um, I'm also trying to check my credit score every five seconds to make sure that the person who burglarized my hotel room in Las Vegas did not also steal my identity. Good news so far, everybody. Uh, and thanks again to those who have sent your uh, sympathies for my predicament um, I'm really fine. It, it's really not that big a deal, especially because it doesn't appear that anyone has even tried to use the credit cards or the passport or anything uh, for any illicit purposes. So knock on wood. But so far, uh, the worst thing that's happened is uh, my uh, assailant. <laughs> is that the right word? My perp? <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I'm on Law and Order. Uh, whoever, whatever we should call this criminal that stole my things, the worst thing he did so far is try to uh, order Uber Eats with my old cell phone. So if that's as bad as it gets, I'll consider myself fairly lucky, um, all things considered. Uh, so yeah, I haven't been playing. I've been thinking about the game a lot. I've been watching a lot of TPE videos. My personal favorite is my friend Andrew Brokus. I just like the way that he explains things. Um, I love watching his old videos about bluffing. He has one out about whether or not to see bet in spots where probably most of us would just automatically do so. Um, I just really like the way Andrew thinks and talks about poker. Uh, it reminds me of when I was in college, I was a music and theater major, and uh, I wanted 
to learn singing. And so I went to the students who had the best singing voices and I asked them who they were studying voice with. So that resulted in me ending up being paired with a teacher who was a great singer. But for me, the way this person explained things just didn't work. So some people are great at something, but there's a different skill involved in breaking that thing down and teaching. Teaching is not the same as doing. Some people are good at both. Some people are actually better at teaching than they are at doing the thing they're teaching. And some people are great at doing something, but when you ask them how they do it, because perhaps because they have so much talent, they can't really articulate what they're doing and how and why. And as a student of something, I think you need that. So anyway, I do have some poker coming up and I've been studying videos on TPE, um, mostly Andrew Brokus. I'm ready to go. I have, uh, I, I plan on playing in uh, this big tournament down in Florida at the Seminole Hard Rock Casino and Hotel in Hollywood, Florida. There's a big, uh, I think it's a $3,500 buy-in with a $3 million guaranteed prize pool. It's going to blow that out of the water. Um, and I know that a lot of the people I'm I'm afraid of are going to be in Reno for Run It Up Reno at the time. So I'm hoping to have <laughs> some pretty good tables down in Florida in a couple of weeks. Um, that event is from April 4th through the 16th, and I, I expect to be there for at least part of that. So if anyone else is planning on going to the Hard Rock for whatever they call this one, I don't know, is it the Hard Rock Poker Open or the Lucky Rock and Roll? I don't know. Seminole, Hard Rock, WPT, whatever it is. Uh, let me know. If you're going to Florida, you know it, and it doesn't really matter what they call the tournament. All right, so let's get into some strategy, guys. I want to continue our review of last year's WSOP main event. Now, since I took over as host of this podcast, we've been talking about uh, the 2018 main event, and I don't think there's any other tournament I'd rather watch on TV and there's certainly no tournament I'd rather discuss with you. We are at the final table. There are nine players left, and things are getting hot and heavy. Uh, we have... Okay, so there's a hand that happened when they're still nine-handed. The blinds were 600,000... Uh, sorry, 300,000, 600,000, with a 100,000 ante from each player at the table. Um Let's see. Nick Mannion, who is second in chips now. He was chip leader when this final table started, but just by a little bit. Uh, decides to step out a little bit, and it's folded to him in the hijack. He's got $100 million in chips, and he opens to $1.4 million in the hijack position with the queen of clubs, tray of clubs. Now, this is not really something we've seen Mannion do up to this point. Um, he's mostly played the way you would expect an amateur player to play, kind of by the book, more or less, what we used to call ABC poker, if you will. Uh, so this already is uh, something that caught my eye when he did that. Um, Aram Zobian folds, and then Michael Dyer, who is again our chip leader, this time with 112 million, which is an all-time high 
for his or anyone else's stack uh, in this tournament calls with the nine of spades, six of spades. Now, this is really something. You don't see this at every final table, and you definitely don't see this every year in the World Series. We have the guy with the second biggest chip stack, and it's not even close, by the way. Third in chips is somewhere around $35 million. So these two guys, this right now this final table is extremely top-heavy with Mannion and Dyer having, like I don't know, something like 40% of the chips in play between them, maybe more like 50%. I could do the math, but I won't. <laughs> so he opens with this, you know, raggedy suited hand queen tray of clubs. And then Dyer calls with a suited two gapper, as we used to call it, the nine of spades, six of spades on the button. Uh, this is interesting to me because it feels like these two guys are jockeying for who's going to uh, be the boss at the table. And by that, I mean, usually there's one player at, at the final table that kind of puts on the captain's hat and steers the action. I feel like Mannion was trying to assert himself as a chip leader, but his problem is uh, Dyer that we've talked about quite a bit on this show because I'm extremely impressed with most of his plays. Uh, he, he calls on the button, so that kind of foils the plan right there. Now, usually the way to fight aggression is with aggression. But here's a spot where just calling does the same work that three betting could do. Dyer's going to get to play this pot in position, and he definitely has a significant post-flop skill edge over his opponent, Nick Mannion. Uh, Also, the blinds are Joe Cata in the small blind and Antoine Labat in the big blind. Now, interestingly, Cata has $36 behind. So he's right around the average stack, maybe slightly below. But Labat has only $7.65 million in his stack uh, at this point. He is by far the shortest stack at the table. I think the next biggest stack was double that, like around $15 million. Um, so I would think that most of the time you don't want to get involved with such substandard holdings when the big blind is so short. However, I think all of the players at the table, or at least the players in this hand, have noticed that Labat doesn't seem to be in any rush to get that stack in. Uh, In his shoes, he should be shoving a lot of hands because... Well, certainly Dyer's call doesn't have to be a strong range. And even though Nick Mannion hasn't been too out of line at this final table or at all in this tournament, um, he should be opening some pots from late position with uh, less than stellar holdings. So I think that a squeeze play uh, by Labatt would work a very large amount of the time. And what I really like about that is He's a short stack anyway, so he's probably more likely than anyone to win ninth place. But putting in a, a well-timed squeeze, uh, making an aggressive play, playing decisively with a short stack is 
almost like a free roll because you were probably going to get ninth place anyway. But if you can pick up a few folds with a couple of plays like this, guess what? You're not even going to be a short stack anymore. It really doesn't take much when the uh, ante is one-third the size of the small blind. I mean, that's a big ante, and this is a full table. So uh, with all that in mind, I would be afraid to call with the nine-six of spades, and I probably wouldn't open with the queen tray of clubs as these players have done. Uh, but I just think because they've noticed how tight Labatt has been and how uh, unwilling to get that stack in he seems, it feels like he's trying to ladder. And therefore, you don't have to worry about him making a desperate short stack shove, squeeze play, and you know push and pray with any two cards and try to try to take it down with his 7.65 million. Uh, so I think with that in mind, that's a bit of a dynamic that's going on there. I'm not sure I would have made the call in Dyer's shoes. I'm sure I wouldn't have made the open. I would not have made the open in uh, Mannion's shoes. I just think that too much has to go right when you have the queen tray from the hijack. I mean, maybe if all things line up perfectly and you have a suited queen three on the button... You want to open on the button. That's one thing. But, you know, trying it from the hijack, I just don't really think it was necessary for him to uh, try to get involved here. So, interestingly, these two blinds have been the t- two of the tightest players at the table. I mean, Joe Cata, he's really solid, guys. I don't know if you're ever going to sit with him in your future. Uh, I wish better luck for you. Um, he is a very good player. He does make maybe like one big move every hour. Um, otherwise, he pretty much plays by the book or even a little tighter than the book, depending on the book. Uh, and he knows how to play uh, an M of 20 or, as you might like to call it, a 60 big blind stack, which is what he has in this situation. So in the small blind, Kata picks up the ace of spades, eight of spades. Uh, to me, this is a hand that you could consider putting into your three-bet range, your squeeze-play range, after it goes raise, call from the two chip leaders. Um, Kata could easily assert himself here, and it's you know it's defensible. Uh, it's been open to 1.4, so what if I put in, I don't know, something like 5 million, uh, especially with my tight table image, I, I might be able to take it down. And even if I don't take it down, as long as there's not another raise put in, uh, I can certainly see a flop and play pretty well with the ace eight of spades. Uh, I'm not saying that Kata should do that, but it's definitely uh, a hand that you could make a case for doing that. Kata folds very quickly. I mean, he didn't really consider doing anything with his ace eight of spades. And I think like most of us, he sees the the second in chips guy open and the chip leader call. And then that just really limits how eager he's going to be to go to war and rightfully so so I, I have no problem with the fold would you fold would you raise would you I hope you wouldn't call I think calling is terrible in the small blind with a hand like ace eight of spades uh, so now our big blind Antoine Labat decides to fold the king of clubs six of hearts and his M is 4.2. He's got 12 big blinds. And I think that under the circumstances, I would have shoved. 
with that hand. Even if you end up getting action from ace-queen or ace-jack, uh, you're not in bad shape with the king-six. Uh, combine that with the fact that there's a pretty good chance you're going to win the raise, the call, the small blind, and all the antes by putting in your whole stack. And combine that with the fact that the most likely outcome going forward from here is that you're going to get ninth place no matter what. Uh, it just seems like a spot to gamble. I'm not sure how many of you will agree with this. Uh, I tend to take risks when the situation calls for risk-taking. And perhaps I do too much of that in my game. But I just know that sitting with that stack, with these two guys getting involved, I, I think that King 6 is doing just fine. Uh, and anyway, we're not really playing King 6. We're betting that we're going to take it down. And then if we're called, we have King 6 as uh, a pretty decent hand, hot and cold, to fall back on. You're doing fine if my opponent doesn't have a king. So Labatt folds, and these two guys see a flop. Now here's the perfect situation for Michael Dyer, which can justify him calling with the 9-6 of spades pre-flop. Obviously, um, <laughs> David Sklansky gap theory wouldn't suggest that 9-6 of spades is a call from any position after there's been a raise in front of me. But here's just a guy playing his big stack and playing his button. He's also playing the fact that Nick Mannion is a pretty straightforward and uncreative player. Now, I don't really mean that as harshly as it sounds. What I mean to say is that it's not going to be impossible for us to figure out what Nick Mannion is up to after the flop. Sure, he's probably going to continuation bet a lot of flops, maybe 100% of the flops, uh, heads up against one other chip leader. I think a lot of people would, would see bet a lot of flops. But I think we can float very profitably against a lot of those bets, whether we have something or not. Anyway, the flop happens to come. King of diamonds, nine of diamonds, four of spades. So uh, Mannion has nothing, not even a back door with his queen tray suited. And uh, my boy, Michael Dyer, has flopped middle pair, and he's also got a just-in-case backdoor flush draw with the four of spades. He's holding the nine, six of spades. So, predictably enough, Mannion C-bets. He puts in a small bet, I think. It's 1.8 into the 4.6 million pot. Uh, I know that a lot of players are doing these small bets now. Uh, I definitely saw Joe Cata doing quite a bit of that when I was playing with him. I kind of picked up that generally he bet smaller when he didn't have it, and he usually bet a little bigger when he did have it. Um, that's just something I've noticed with a lot of pros. So guys, if you want to make this kind of bet when you have absolutely nothing, if you don't want to be exploitable by a great player like Michael Dyer or even a pretty a mediocre player like Clayton Fletcher, you have to make that same bet when you want action as when you don't. So anyway, he puts in 1.8 million and Dyer, of course, calls with second pair and his backdoor draw and the button. 
the turn comes a five of hearts. So uh, Mannion still has absolutely nothing. And I think also predictably, he decides to check. So if you are Nick Mannion and you want to open with a queen three of clubs from the hijack position at the World Series of Poker main event championship final table, you have to have a plan. And perhaps the plan is C-bet every flop, only double barrel if I pick up equity, and otherwise check give up. Let me just tell you, if that's the plan, you're losing money by opening with the queen tray of clubs. First of all, you're not going to get this open through often enough pre-flop. Second of all, your hand is so... uh, It has a low playability rating, by which I mean it very seldom flops well. Uh, I mean, I guess the flop we're hoping for is a flush draw. So maybe two clubs would be nice on the flop. Um, Maybe a queen is manageable because, you know, hopefully a top pair queen would be good. Uh, There just aren't that many good flops for your hand. So usually you're going to fire fire that automatic C-bet. Dyer, who kind of knows how to play, is going to call so often on the flop in position to see what you do on the turn. And then you're always going to check give up the turn when you don't pick up equity, which you usually won't. So therefore, this strategy is not profitable. I would prefer uh, Mannion just keep Queen Trey out of his opening range to begin with, even from the hijack. So here we are. And now he checks. And Mannion uh, has pretty much given up. And you can even see it in his body language. He has no interest in this pot anymore. Um, Dyer bets $2.35 million into the $8.2 million pot. Again, a very small sizing. And Mannion folds with very little thought. So I'm not saying that Mannion should have done anything differently on the flop or on the turn. What I mean is, given, you know, I hate when people say this, but as played, I don't mind his flop or turn play. But I think that the problem for him is that Dyer knows exactly where he stands. So there need to be some check raises on the turn in my range. There needs to be a bigger C bet sometimes on the flop when I completely whiff. Uh, There needs to be some flop check raises. In other words, you have to keep your opponent off balance, in my opinion. Otherwise, a shark like Dyer is just going to take full advantage of every time you show weakness, you're weak. Uh, That's just too easy to beat. So this hand I found interesting because uh, it's just one of the many ways experienced professional players take advantage of less experienced players in tournament situations. So amateur players or less experienced players who want to get after it, you need to understand why that puts you at such a disadvantage. And you actually might be better off just playing solid values and really having it when you make raises. A little while later, um, my friend Michael Dyer, who, by the way, is actually not my friend. I feel like this podcast is like the Michael Dyer fan club. Uh, I just I really like the way the guy exploited his opponents uh, throughout the tournament. He really played the hyper aggressive style, as we used to call it, 
extremely well. Uh, you know, the books would tell you in early position, you want to have these kind of hands in middle position. You can increase your hands by these, you know, Michael Dyer does what we used to call the hyper aggressive style, meaning we don't need any hand ranges. We don't need <laughs> any, uh, position, um, you know, qualifications. We can just raise, raise, raise and take advantage of everybody. To the casual observer, it may appear that he's just a maniac trying to run the table over. But what it looks like to me is that he's noticed this table can be run over and he's running over the table. Uh, here's another case in point. We're down to eight players now. Uh, Labat finally busted. And now we have eight players remaining in the tournament and two folds to Michael Dyer who now, if you look at it, he is in third position. He's also in the hijack. So he opens to 1.2 million, the minimum. He's got the king of hearts, nine of spades, uh, more than enough <laughs> firepower for a player like him. Folded to Artem Metalidi, who is, I want to say... Uh, Slovenian, no, Ukrainian. He's the only player at the final table who wore sunglasses, and he looks like a douche. Uh, pardon my word choice there, but there's really no other word to describe him. On top of that, he takes forever to make decisions. On top of that, the decisions he makes after taking forever are usually not good ones. So uh, not a big uh, proponent of... Uh, Artem Metalidi, nor his personal style, nor his poker style. Uh, nothing against his family, of course. He's in the cutoff. Guys, I lied before. Uh, at an eight-handed table, third position is the low jack, not the high jack. Dyer is four off the button not three off the button. My mistake. Um, Metalidi has 18 million in chips to start this hand. So his M is 10. There is 1.8 million in the middle as the cards are being dealt. Now to me, when you have that kind of stack, you guys probably call it 30 big blinds or less. You got around 30 big blinds or your M is 10. You want to be really careful about what hands you get involved in playing and how you play those hands. To me, when I'm in that range of of chips, I would either I would prefer have a basically a raise fold strategy. You want to find a hand that you're willing to get committed with, uh, and and get committed with it. The reason why is that suppose we get speculate we start speculating and you know we call this raise like in this situation uh Metalidi picks up the king of diamonds jack of diamonds now i think this is a fold that might seem crazy to some of you it's so pretty and it's it's two broadway cards the problem for him is that he doesn't close the action by calling so he could easily run into a bigger hand behind him and then have to fold, having put in almost 10% of his stack already just by calling the preflop raise, which, by the way, was the open that was the minimum open. 
so that's one thing that could go wrong. He could call a continuation bet with second pair, and now he's put in over 20% of his stack and then have to fold on a later street. To me, it's just when when I'm getting that, when every single decision I make is for such a big chunk of my stack, even beginning with the pre-flop decision, I prefer to just be really decisive. I wouldn't mind, honestly, if Metaliti decided to three-bet. Dyer has been wildly aggressive at this table. He has been running the action at this table and the table before it for like three days now. It is time for someone to take a stand against Michael Dyer. And it would be fun to see a guy with an M of 10 with 30 big blinds go ahead and put some of those chips to work. Uh, You need to be aggressive when you, this isn't the time to call and see a flop and see how it goes and see what happens. I disagree with the decision he makes here. And I definitely disagree with how long he takes to make it. Just do something already. We watch him stare through dark sunglasses for two minutes. Then he finally makes the call. Now, considering the fact that I think Metalidi's already made a mistake, he kind of gets a good situation uh, in that he ends up heads up with Dyer. Everybody else folds, and the flop comes. Queen of clubs, seven of spades, deuce of hearts. Uh, Pretty much the driest board in the history of the world. And Metalidi has absolutely no piece of it. He has the King Jack of Diamonds on Queen 7 Deuce with no diamonds. Uh, Dyer, of course, also has no piece of this board. And Metalidi is, in fact, something like an 85% favorite to win this pot, uh, given that Dyer pretty much would have to hit his kicker or bluff his way out of it. Well, I think we all know which direction Dyer's going to go here. So, what you'd like to be able to do in position is float the super hyper-aggressive chip leader one time on the flop, and then, based on how he behaves on the turn, consider trying to take the pot away, as we saw in the previous hand discussed. The problem for Metalidi is his stack just is not big enough for this type of maneuvering. He's got the kind of stack where you got to have to grab the bull by the horns and do it now. Uh, because he just flatted pre-flop, he's already put 10% of his stack in. When Dyer bets... Uh, it's going to be another huge chunk of his stack that he probably can't afford to put in and be wrong. Dyer actually gives him a chance. He bets only $1.05 million into the $4.15 million pot. Uh, if there was ever a time when you could flat off a 30 big blind stack on a on a continuation bet, this is it. You are absolutely priced in to call and see if your opponent checks the turn or not. Who cares if you lose another million at this point? You've already made uh, several mistakes in the hand. So, or at least one mistake uh, that I can count. So, I think this is just a really good uh, demonstration of why we don't want to be... uh, just flatting to see what happens on the turn when we really can't afford to do so, then maybe we shouldn't be calling preflop in the first place with a marginal kind of pretty hand like King Jack of Diamonds. Dyer takes it down with the tiny, the smallest continuation bet ever. And uh, Metalidi folds actually very quickly. He didn't really consider making a play. So guys, 
Um, poker is not a slot machine. Okay, if you're trying to win uh, the main event championship, you have to have a better plan than fit or fold when you have 30 big blinds, M of 10, these types of stacks. We just can't afford to be letting people chip away at us like this a little bit at a time. Metaliti lost almost 10% of his stack in this pot, and he could have actually won the pot. If he three-bet pre-flop, he may have taken it down. If he raised that little flop bet, he may have taken it down. If he called that little million-dollar flop bet and then uh, bet on the turn when Dyer gives up, which he probably would. Uh, and the reason I say that, guys, is because I, I think Dyer can see that Metaliti is getting pretty close to pot commitment with his stack sizing. So he's not going to just keep blindly trying to push him off of whatever he has. Now, I'm wondering uh, if, as you guys are listening to this, you're feeling uh, like maybe you do the same thing. How do you play a 30 big blind stack? At what point do you start to feel like your stack is so short that you either need to raise with it or fold it? Uh, or do you ever get to that point? Are you willing to let them chip away at you, take 10% of your stack here with a little pre-flop raise, maybe get another t- 10% here with a continuation bet, and then the next thing you know, you're the short stack at the table. Um, I don't mean to uh, <laughs> lead the witness, Your Honor, but I don't think that's good poker. At what point do you start to feel like you don't get to speculate anymore? Because to me, it's right around that M equals 10 kind of range. Now, what kind of anti-structure you have is greatly going to impact whether your M will be 10 when you have 30 big blinds or 40 big blinds, which is why I prefer to look at uh, M. In this case, the ante is so large and the table is full. Actually, it's eight-handed now, but yeah, it was full a second ago, uh, that it becomes extremely important to be precise about what percentage of your stack is going in before the flop, on the flop, and so on. Because the next thing you know, you're out of chips and you could have been tighter or at least more aggressive, more uh, decisive, shall we say, and not have yourself get into that position as Metaliti did in that hand. Now you might say, look, he only lost a little bit of his stack. No, that's just my point. I think he lost a lot of his stack. Calling one raise with an M of 10 is too much for me to lose with a hand like King Jack when I don't have a plan for how to play the flop. A little while later, I'm not trying to pick on Artem Metaliti. <laughs> I don't, I really doubt that he's listening to this anyway, and he's probably just counting his millions, even if he is, like laughing in my face, like, okay, Mr. Comedian, how many millions have you won at the final table of the main event? Um, but that said, like, you know, for educational purposes, I feel like uh, it is a big mistake to play passively or indecisively with this type of stack. Uh, so a little while later, Metaliti is now down to 15 million in chips and he's under the gun holding pocket nines. Uh, the level is almost over. They say uh, there's going to be a break in 10 minutes. Um, so at that point, the blinds will be moving up to 400 and 600, still with the 100 ante. Um, pocket nines under the gun at this eight-handed table is uh, not an easy hand to play. Um, my M at this point is eight, 
a little more, eight and a half. Um, I have, what is that, 26 big blinds. So it's not an easy spot. I'm not saying it is. But with $16 million in chips, with pocket nines under the gun, what I know we shouldn't be doing is calling. So let's rule out calling as an option. Uh, I think we shouldn't be min-raising either. It's just, if you look at it, like suppose we put in $1.2 million of our $16 million. Now, again, we're getting into that same situation. We're probably, we're probably going to get some action from at least one of our opponents, and we're almost definitely not going to like the flop enough to get committed to it. So then we're just kind of bleeding away chips. I actually have uh, a wild idea, what some of you will consider a wild idea. In this spot with this hand, being the short stack in the main event, I would shove, okay, I can pick up the $1.8 million, increase my stack by about 12% if I take it down pre-flop. And even when I'm called, many times I'm going to be in a coin flip situation. Now, I know that poker players nowadays hate to be in coins, coin flip situations, but if there was ever a time that you should be willing to take a coin flip, it's when you're the short stack with eight players left in the main event. You should be trying to get first place money, the glory, the gold, the championship bracelet, uh, like my friend John Sin has been playing throughout this final table. Even when he was a short stack, he was going for first place. So I think that's the way to approach it. And if you don't want to do that, I actually think it might be better to fold than to just min-raise or limp in and then try to play pocket nines out of position against X number of opponents that we're likely to have at this table. So that's what I think uh, he should do. But instead, Artem Medaliti looks down at his hand, stares blankly at nothing for like 45 to 50 seconds while the rest of us just watch grass grow, which would be much more exciting. Uh, shuffle his chips for a while and basically drive me crazy as I'm trying to watch <laughs> the video. And he does eventually decide to put in a raise of $1.3 million. So I think this play is a mistake unless what he's hoping to do is get all in against somebody who decides to 3-bet him. But I just don't think that anyone's going to 3-bet him when he has that kind of stack and he's just raised under the gun. He's basically announced, I have at least pocket eights. I think in his shoes, folding pocket sevens is probably okay. Um, and maybe even correct. So he's basically invited action when he's got a hand that's going to be hard to play. Luckily for him, no one in position does call. It actually folds all the way to Joe Cata in the big blind, holding uh, Jack-10 offsuit. It's only 700 more for him to call, and there's already $3 million in the pot. So it's a trivially easy call for Cata, um, who has to be able to put Metaliti on a pretty strong range uh, for raising under the gun with the short stack at this table. So the flop comes 10-7 tray, and so Cata has flopped top pair, and Metaliti is holding a pair between top and middle pair. Uh, now, here's the problem. He's already put in 1.3 of his 16 million chips. So, what are we supposed to do now when it's uh, checked to us and we have pocket nines on a 10 high flop? I think most players would bet. And when they bet, they're going to get 
that much more of the stack in anyway. So where shoving may have seemed silly before to some of you, uh, I think it's a very defensible play. Just put the whole 26 big blinds or whatever it is in, push and pray. Sometimes you'll take down the pot. Sometimes you'll get called by eights or sevens. And sometimes you'll win a coin flip and be back in contention for this bracelet. Uh, So that's the way I would approach it. While you still have a stack to get something done, uh, you know, you should try to get something done. So Metal ED bets 1.2 million. So now we've put in 2.5 of our 16 million chips into this pot. Uh, And of course, Kata makes the call with top pair. Now, Kata can't love his hand because obviously Metal ED has a pretty tight range for opening under the gun with an M of eight and a half. Uh, but given the way the flop has come down and the fact that Joe also has the Jack of Hearts just in case, and there's a lot of cards that can give him a flush draw or a straight draw, or in some cases both, I think it's a pretty easy call for Kata here on the flop, and he does just that. So now the Eight of Diamonds hits the turn, and it's a great card for Metaliti. Uh, Kata checks. It's also a pretty good card for Kata because now in case his pair of tens was no good, he now has a straight draw to go with it. So uh, if I'm Metaliti and I opted not to put the money in pre-flop, I think this card is my chance to finally make up for that and be aggressive and push Joe Kata off of whatever he called me with on the flop. I would put in a large bet here. There's 6.1 million in the pot. I think Metaliti should commit to this pot. Put in, I don't know, maybe even like close to a pot size bet. Put in 6 million. And now I can't fold even if I want to if Kata shoves over the top, which he probably won't. Uh, I'm open-ended. I also have a pair of nines that could be good. And I should be willing to get this, the chips in. This is a very good board for pocket nines, considering all the things that can go wrong when we raise under the gun with pocket nines, things have gone out of Metalidi's way. And not only does he not take advantage of that, he also wastes another three minutes before finally deciding in position to check with his pair that also has an open-ended straight draw. So Metalidi does check it back. And now the four of spades comes on the river, which is not a great uh, not a meaningful card to, to anyone. I suppose the 5-6 got there, uh, but that's a pretty hard hand for either of these players to have, um, given the way the hand has been played. So uh, with 6.1 million still in the pot, I think Kata sees that he's probably got the better hand here and decides to try to get some value from it. So I really like what Kata does here. He puts in 3.2 million into the 6.1 million pot. And Metalidi is in a brutal situation. He's already put in uh, about 18% of his stack. And now he's being asked to put in another 3.2 million. He's only got about 13 million behind, 13.5 million behind. So you can see where... Uh, Having played this hand so passively and in such an indecisive way has put Metaliti into a position where he has now just got an impossible river decision. Uh, He has to guess as to whether Kata is value betting with a hand better than nines or could he also be value betting 
with a hand worse than nines would Cata bet a hand like nine eight open ended on the flop and then picked up a pair on the turn. Um, would Cata ever be bluffing? Some draws have missed. Something like Queen Jack of Hearts had a flush draw on the flop and now has only queen high, so if he wants to try to win the pot, he needs to bet. So all of these things have to run through uh, Metalidi's head, and the problem for him is that if he makes a mistake, that mistake is extremely costly in terms of what percentage of his stack is lost. Uh, For me, I'm more upset about the hours of my life I've wasted staring at Metalidi, staring at no one because he just takes forever to make his decisions. And guys, if you are one of these players that just can't figure out what to do or thinks that there's some kind of strength in taking forever, wearing sunglasses makes you look like an idiot or an amateur. And thinking for five minutes before every decision just makes everyone hate you. Um, And not in the type of way where it's going to help you get action later. So he pays him off the $3.2 million after some kind of deliberation. And Cata wins a nice pot. Meanwhile, Metalidi's now down to $10 million. You might say, well, Clayton, if he shoves pre-flop, he might end up losing the whole stack. And that is true. But this is tournament poker, guys. And if you're the short stack at an eight-handed championship table, and you're probably not one of the better players at the table, at least not from what I've seen, you might want to take some chances. I think that as a community, poker players are too risk-averse anymore. Everyone's afraid of variance, and everyone wants to always try to, quote, find a better spot, and so on. I don't think Metalidi can find much better of a spot with a M of 8.5 than just getting it all in eight-handed with pocket nines and then see who wakes up behind me with something, if anyone. Uh, anyway, that's going to do it for this week. I know I sound a little angry. It has been a long week. I'm a little bit tired from my travels and my recent crime victimization. But uh, the truth is, I get fired up about this stuff. I'm extremely passionate about poker, as you all know by now. And I just hate to see players with an opportunity to play really, really well when players play poorly, especially when I'm the one who's playing poorly. Uh, it, It drives me crazy. So... Uh, hopefully you guys enjoy this type of commentary and you like walking through some of these hands with me. For me, the whole goal is for all of us to imagine what it'll be like to be at a big final table this summer at the World Series of Poker so that we've done enough mental homework and visualization so that when we get there and we're in the moment, uh, we don't make these kind of mistakes and that all of us will be better prepared than some of these players appear to be in the 2018 World Series of Poker main event. So that'll do it for this episode. I want to thank you guys for listening. Please give me your comments and your thoughts about everything, including my bad attitude tonight, at Clayton Comic on Twitter. Also, uh, feel free if you have a a lengthy question that you want to send. I will be going through some of the emails. I've been hoarding them because I want to do an all-email episode soon. And that address, again, is poker at ClaytonFletcher.com. So for everyone here at Tournament Poker Edge, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you so much for listening.
Love it, it's not rough, it isn't fun, fun Oh, 